Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's the Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud Fast Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personable in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high-quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high-quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. That's E-S-S-E-X, coffeeroasters.com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. Big shout out to the band Crossed Keys uh, for lending us that awesome fucking music during our little ad. That song is called Who We Never Were. You can buy that single currently off of Bandcamp. The band is called Crossed Keys. It will be on their full-length album, Believes in You. Uh, that song was lent to me by Crossed Keys, specifically, uh, I don't know if he goes by Joey Angel or goes by Joshua Alvarez, but I met him as Joshua Alvarez. He's the co-host of Cinepunks, our fucking network. And I told him, I love this song, I want to use it, so that way people don't have to just listen to me talk. And he said, fuck yeah. So please, if you like the song, uh, the song is called Who We Never Were. You can get that on Bandcamp currently. Uh, it's off of their album Believes in You. You can get the 10 song. The 10 song LP is out May 5th, Friday, May 5th. Uh, you can actually order it on vinyl right now. So go show them some love. Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, 
and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and pick up your copies of Rudy Ray Moore's Dolomite films, just in time for the new Netflix movie Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. Also available is Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper, James Hong's The Vineyard, Pledge Night, Lust in the Dust, starring Divine, Putney Swope, The Amityville Cursed Collection, and much, much more. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Tammy and the T-Rex in glorious 4K Ultra High Definition, or Blu-ray, and The Angel Collection. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers and with me is a very good friend of mine, someone who's been on the show a couple of times, hasn't been on though in a couple of seasons. He is a not only a good friend of mine, he was my best man and he and I was his. Uh, on top of that, he's also an accomplished filmmaker. He makes music videos, he is a documentarian, and now has a new career as a wildlife photographer. Kyle Arpke! Hey! Happy Independence Day! Yeah, I get. By the time this comes out, it'll be shortly after Independence right, something Day. Something like that. But okay, it, it works. This, you know, this is our 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 um, our America episode. Yes. <laughs> um, how have you been, Kyle? I feel like I've seen you a lot recently, so it's, it's weird asking how you've been. I've been pretty good. I've been pretty good. Speaking of America, I've been taking photos of bald eagles, which is about as America as you can get. Yeah, and it's going to be on the cover of what magazine? MKE Lifestyle Magazine. All right, for all those of you listening at home who aren't from Wisconsin, That's MKE is a is a, an acronym. Acronym? Abbreviation. Abbreviation for Milwaukee. Sure. Yeah. MKE. Uh, and uh, for those of you listening, if things sound a little different, we are we're recording a little bit differently. Normally, I'll, I'll be in my little studio space talking, but now we have we are recording in Kyle's living room. We have some wireless lav mics attached to us it lets us be hands-free and untethered so we could just like pace and com- converse if we wanted to but so if there's a lot of uh if it sounds a little different that's yeah why if it doesn't sound different it's probably because michael did a lot of work in post-production it could be we'll find out it could be <laughs> which will not work well with my oh shit i have to quickly get this episode that's out right. mentality <laughs> But what have you, so, you know, I've been taking some photos, uh, I've been working on a few, like, very small, um, I call them, like, live music videos, because they, it, there's Come this, in your specialty. Yeah, it's like, uh, where the, there's this uh, artist that I work with, Julian Kozak, and we've come up with these ideas where um, he wants to do some stuff where it's, like, recorded on the location, Um and you just sort of like do the song in a take. Um, and I was just like, let's let's do one take for all these things, uh, all these music videos. So it started like we had one 
last year where we had, um, you know, a camera operator. Why am I forgetting the term? I'm a filmmaker, aren't I? Uh, you know, he's got a little... Uh, Dolly? Or no, um, um, Steadicam operator? Thank you, my gosh, yeah. Little Steadicam operator thing going on. So we did like a video like that. Um, and then uh, recently we did two other videos. One is just like a slow zoom in and then another one that's uh, much more... You know how more... much I like my zooms. Yeah. But they are pain in the ass to get right. And for three and a half minutes, oh you know, my God. not an easy task. So were you pulling focus while doing a zoom or were you just, did you just kind of set your end point and just slowly zoom so, towards uh, it? There was uh, um, pulling focus while doing the zoom. Um, thankfully I had someone else operate the camera for me. <laughs> so there was, there was a point while shooting my newest film, No Soliciting, where we do a couple zooms yeah. and a couple snap zooms in it. There was a point where we found out our little, like, you know, uh, f uh, focus pulling rig was not communicating with the lens that we had. So they were, it was constantly off. Uh, so then we got to the point where we had to do it by hand. So then you had, you'd have one person pulling focus while the other person zoomed all by hands. So they're all just underneath this really small camera. And then trying to do that, I don't know why we decided we had to pull focus while doing a snap zoom, but we thought, what well, can we? Should we try it? Yeah. Eventually, it just got to the point where I just did what I did back in the back in film school whenever I'd use the zoom lens, just like set your final focus point and just do it. You know. Well, what am I, what am I Hitchcock? I don't care. Right. Well, and if you're working, it you know that not to get real technical, but. It, you know, that all depends on, like, the type of glass you're using. Because mm -hmm. if you're using photo glass, which a lot of people do nowadays, they use glass that was meant for um, photography, you can't set that focus point. Yeah, that's what we were... Um, oh, yes, we had, we ran into that as well, yeah. because I think a couple shots we were using vintage lenses. And, yeah, because it's... That's, like you said, that's what a lot of people do now, because not always, but you can get some decent photo glass mm -hmm. for a lot less than you'd pay for similar 100%. film and video lenses or yeah. glass yeah totally but then sometimes and then what you run into especially when you're using vintage lenses is sometimes it just doesn't hold a focus like um actually that movie we talked about it off mic a little bit that movie ain't them body saints david lowry's first feature film um that's there's a couple shots that in the middle of a close-up, it would go in and out of focus. And I asked him about it, and he said, oh, it's just because we were using vintage lenses, and they couldn't always hold their focus for very long. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. But he said I liked it, so I kept it. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so I've been doing music videos, doing the birding, uh, photography, writing articles. What about yourself? Um. Well, other than keeping this podcast running... It's been a crazy year trying to keep this thing going. I've been, um, uh, as I mentioned my, before, my uh, film I just made, No Soliciting, just got into the Milwaukee Short Film Festival. Congrats. Submitted to a couple more. I'm not really necessarily planning on doing like a full festival run with this, but you know, local festivals don't usually charge much, if anything. And I thought everyone wants to be able to see it on the big screen. Yeah. You know, and it's going to be uh, playing at the Avalon. Oh, that's awesome. So that'll be cool. That's really cool. Um, so that got into that festival, and I might be doing a, um, 
uh, a panel there as well. Cool. Uh, I'm also shopping around a panel idea to the Twisted Dreams Film Festival that I hope gets picked up. Okay. Um, and then, well, this is not, this is not really, ex- it's exciting news, even though it's rejection. Does that make sense? Um, so me and a friend of mine, uh, his name is Mac Bates. He's a, uh, an actor, but he was also yeah. kind of made his name doing writing for like the Journal Sentinel and Milwaukee Magazine and things like that. He was a film critic. Um, we've been going back and forth about this piece that we wanted to write and we actually pitched it. It got denied. But it was a soft denial because they said we are not looking to do because we have this idea. It's an ongoing piece about uh, our relationship to music through film. That we're going to do it as a ongoing piece, a series. Um, and they said we like the idea. We don't know if we want to do a series right now. Reach out to us again later in the year. Okay. So it's like a soft denial. Like okay. it's still a maybe. That's not bad. Yeah. What's also not bad is what you did is you just completely did a nice volleyball serve up to talk about our films, you know, today that are about, you know, they, they got a lot of music in them. Yes. Let's just say that. <laughs> yes. They have like a almost... very interesting relationship with music. And I liked your segue <laughs> I guess that's the perfect way to, to move on to our topic. Unless there's anything else you wanted to talk about. I mean, I could talk about anything, but you know, honestly, say like <laughs> I will say the last thing I'll say before we move on to the topic at hand. That's been the when I first started podcasting. I remember there was one point early on where I had to do like an episode on my own. I was like, "There's no way that I can fill time," and maybe like my first like bon- like first episode by myself was like maybe like twenty minutes. I could do an hour by myself easily sure. right now. Like it's it's you just get to a certain point of. I'll go take a bathroom break. We're good. <laughs> yeah. You just get comfortable talking to yourself. It may not um, necessarily always be the most eloquent, but it works. Um, but if you haven't read the description for this episode and uh, are confused, I'd, I'd like to imagine there's someone out there that just blindly listens to every episode of the Shameless Picture Show and doesn't even look at what the episode's yes. about. They're like, fuck it, new episode, download. Um, but if you if you didn't read the description or the episode, or anything like that. Today's episode, we are going to be talking about two films. What? Two films. Um, we are going to be talking about both Top Gun and Risky Bit. No, kidding. And Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. So as listeners know, usually I'll write a little intro where I will explain the... Um, the plot for this for the films that we're just discussing. I'll try to give some historical context. Your boy's been tired, and I just never got to it. <laughs> so, this episode, very very much like I've done a couple times this season, I'm just gonna fucking wing it. Nice, you know. So, I guess let's talk about the first Top Gun. Give the description of then the description of Top Gun Maverick, and we can talk about them both like interchangeably. Yeah, sure. So, Top Gun. A very popular movie from 1986, I believe. Let's see how close I was to that. Let's see. Top Gun, 1986. Holy shit. (laughs) Top Gun, 1986 uh, is about... You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to read the descriptions off of uh, Letterboxd. Oh, okay. All right. So the description for Top Gun... Plus, then we can make fun of these descriptions if they're bad. Uh, For Lieutenant Pete Maverick Mitchell and his friend and co-pilot Nick Goose Bradshaw being accepted into an elite training school for fighter pilots is a dream come true but a tragedy as well as personal demons 
I guess, will threaten Peach dreams of becoming an ace pilot. Uh, from 1986, directed by Tony Scott, based on a magazine article. What? Yes, it's based on a magazine article written by Ehud Yone. I'm probably mispronouncing that, uh, where he talks about the Top Gun flight school, and uh, so that they, the writers, um, Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. took a lot of inspiration from that and made this story. Hmm. Uh, early film in the career of that of Tony Scott. This is his second feature this film. This is the second one. Yeah, he might have done some, like, I don't know like if he did oh, sh- shorts or music videos and stuff, but this is his second feature film. Okay. So this is a really early film for Tony Scott, who I think is the better of the two Scott brothers. Or at least I think the most rewatchable. I loved Ridley Scott movies when I was a kid, but I have not kept up with his work. For quite a while. I just feel like Tony Scott's having a lot more fun when he's making a movie than Ridley is. I feel like Ridley almost hates the process of making a movie sometimes. Definitely. Like, Ridley Scott's got the whole, like, I'm British and things have to, like, you know, kind of be... I gotta kind of be angry about everything I do. And yet his brother Tony Scott feels like the most American Brit I can imagine. (laughs) Yes, totally. Like, it's it's phenomenal. Uh, So the first Top Gun stars Tom Cruise as... Lieutenant Pete Maverick Mitchell, Kelly McGillis as Charlie Blackwood, my boy Val Kilmer as Lieutenant Tom Iceman Kazansky, and you got Anthony Edwards as Nick Goose Bradshaw, Tom Skerritt as Mike Viper Metcalf, uh, Michael Ironside in a really small part in this movie. Um, yeah, like I said, from 1986. And then we're also going to be d- discussing from 2022 uh, from Joseph Kozinski, Top Gun maverick letterbox describes it as after more than 30 years of service as one of the navy's top aviators and dodging the advancement and rank that would ground him pete maverick mitchell finds himself training a detachment of top gun graduates for a specialized mission the likes of which no living pilot has ever seen facing an uncertain future and confronting the ghosts of his past maverick is drawn into a confrontation with his own deepest fears culminating in a mission that demands the ultimate sacrifice from those who will be chosen to fly it that's actually a much better description than the first top gun but there's also more story in top gun maverick that's true to send you up against the best. Yes, sir. You two characters are going to Top Gun. I feel the need. The need for speed. For five weeks, you're going to fly against the best fighter pilots in the world. You guys really are cowboys. I don't like you because you're unsafe. That's right. I am dangerous. The wild card lies by the seat of his pants. I guess when I see something, I go right after it. It takes a lot more than just fancy flying. Gentlemen, this school is about combat. There are no points for second place. You figured it out yet? What's that? Who's the best pilot? No, I think I can figure that one out on my own. Tom Cruise, Kelly McGillis. Top Gun. Thirty plus years of service. 
combat medals, citations. Only man to shoot down three enemy planes in the last 40 years. Yet you can't get a promotion, you won't retire. Despite your best efforts, you refuse to die. You should be at least a two-star admiral by now. Yet here you are. Captain. Why is that? It's one of life's mysteries, sir. inevitable, Maverick. You're kind of set it for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. Uh, as I said, directed by uh, Joseph Kaczynski, who had made the films Oblivion and uh, Tron Legacy before, from a s- produced and written by uh, Christopher McQuarrie, who you're a big fan of, or at least you're a big fan of his oh, um, Mission Impossible yeah, films. Yeah, absolutely. He's one of my favorite favorite people. If you ever get the chance, like he's done some extremely in-depth interviews about making his Mission movies that are like a master class that you can just learn an insane amount from. Um, so, that I'm looking forward to. Yeah. But apparently there's also quite a few uh, writers on here as well. There's uh, Eric Warren Singer, Peter Craig, Justin Marks, and Aaron Kruger, which that name stru- stuck out to me. Having just watched like seven Transformers films, he wrote two of them. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he wrote uh, um, Revenge of the Fallen, Age of Extinction, Oh, and also Dark of the Moon. So he wrote actually three Transformers movies. Well, this makes a lot of sense because the other person that is really worth mentioning in all of this is uh, is Jerry Bruckheimer. Yes. Who is the producer on both of these films. Um, and I'm trying to remember if he produced Transformers, but he's like, you know... Connected to Michael Bay mm-hmm. through all, all the films they did early on. He's with him. a pretty big name. Yeah, like he also did Pirates of the Caribbean. Yep. He did National Treasure, and he did work with Michael Bay because he produced uh, like Bad, Bad Boys, Boys and Armageddon and, yep. and The Rock. Right. So he no, has had. He's quite a name in in Hollywood blockbuster history. Like him or hate him, 
he he he's kind of like a Michael Bay figure where he has his hands in so much. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like he's one of the most important um, film producers I think of our time. Definitely, I feel like even people who maybe don't know. Uh, if my levels ever get weird, let me know. Um, I feel like he's not quite necessarily on the level of say a Spielberg, where everyone knows who Spiel- Spielberg's name. But I feel like Jerry Bruckheimer, on the level of producers, is almost there. I feel like most people probably don't necessarily know what a producer is, but yeah. for the people who are, you know, say into movies but aren't necessarily like at our level, I feel like Jerry Bruckheimer, if anyone can name a producer, probably him. Yeah, totally. You know, unless you count like Walt Disney, but I don't count people who, you know, are directors as well, but like just purely producers, yeah. I feel like Jerry Bruckheimer might be one of the ones people can name. Totally. Yeah. So this is his first film that he, like he went on like a three film run with Tony Scott um, that started with Top Gun. Um, yeah, let's see if I can find that three film run. Yeah, he did um, Days Top of Thunder. So he directed Top Gun. Sorry, produced Top Gun. He produced Beverly Hills Cop 2 and 1. But okay. Tony Scott directed the second one. Okay. Um, he also produced Crimson Tide with Tony Scott. And um, I feel like he did Days of Thunder. He might have. I just. Which is one of those. Like, that's a film. Yep, Days of Thunder. Okay. Yeah, you're right. It was it was Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Days of Thunder, all in a row okay. with Tony Scott. Cool. Um, I have a weird soft spot for Days of Thunder, which is not a great movie. Wasn't Stallone in that movie, or am I thinking of a different no, movie? No, Tom Cruise. That's another Tom Cruise. Okay, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a different movie where Stallone's a, a, car, like a race car driver. Okay. I don't think I've seen Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder is like a, NAS, like, it's a NASCAR movie. Where he's driving, you know, Tom Cruise is basically Tom Cruise's Jeff Gordon. If anyone's I, familiar I, with that car, I love this this career that Tony Scott has had of just vehicles going fast. Yeah, you know, he had Top Gun, which is airplanes going fast. He's like, what? What if cars went fast? And you get trains. Days of Thunder. Train. He did two trains yeah, going fast right. movies. He did a. Uh, the remake of Taking Pelham 1, yeah. 2, 3, which is actually surprisingly... It's pretty good. It's a fun remake. It's a different type of movie, but it's a lot of fucking fun. And and John Travolta is just chewing up that series with his fucking goatee and shit. And then he did that other one, Unstoppable. Which is great, like legitimately a great film. Like, what if trains went fast? <laughs> that was just kind of like Tony Scott's MO for a little bit. What if vehicles just went fast? Yeah, and I've, I've really, like, over the years... I've really grown to appreciate the fact that he's just got this kind of wild style to his films. Um, I try to put at least one Tony Scott shot in every movie I make where I just, when we're shooting an interior, I'm like, well, just get the smoke machine in here. <laughs> nice. Like, I, I always say, this is my Tony Scott shot. That's funny. <laughs> uh, what's interesting is, like, Top Gun, you can, again, it's, like, early in his career, so you can tell that it's, it's not fully the crazy style that he like. He's still ends figuring it out, but you can see it. Like, because yeah. when I think of Tony Scott movies, I think of just really smoky interiors. I think of sweaty people. Oh, you which, got that. Dude, don't, yeah, Top Gun has got. I think of really aggressive coloring. Yup. You know, you got that. Here. You got that amazing sepia tone. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that's like missing from Top Gun that you see in his later works is like. 
the crazy editing. Yeah, and the the camera movement. He he moves yeah, the camera right. quite a bit. Yeah, it's um it's it is almost crazy to think that him and Ridley Scott are related because they have such very different oh, totally. ethos when it comes to filmmaking. Ridley, well, yeah, because Ridley Scott's the guy who like put like twenty cameras to just film a scene, and they'll be like, "Okay, I covered it." And you're like, "Well, that's crazy." Yeah, <laughs> um, but like then he also feels he almost—it's not that he doesn't have a style because he kind of does, but he almost feels like he's just like it almost feels really, like he resents his style. Yeah, and that he's just good at being whatever the movie needs to be, yeah. if that makes sense. I feel like. I want to see what they're like as children. Because I feel like Ridley Scott was like drawing pictures of trains while Tony Scott was like tr- crashing them into each other. Yeah, that could, be, that could very well be. I just think that'd be great. Um, so, on, oh, yeah. Oh, no. What were you going to say? I was going to say, going back to this description of Top Gun yeah. from Letterboxd, it is hilarious to me that they like, they make it sound like. Like Maverick's got like a drug or problem. I know his demon. Like, like professional demons. wrestling has taught me to know <laughs> that demons means you have a drug or alcohol right, problem. That's right. Instead, his inner demons are just like being cocky as hell. Like I, I know that. Like uh, oh, and I guess his dad. Yeah, right? I guess so. Like he has to kind of live up to that, yeah. which they do a nice job of uh, kind of um, redoing in a different way in Top Gun Maverick. Um, but like that was that was the so we'll talk about in a second like our first impressions of it and if we have a history of the film. But this was my first time seeing it, and I I'd, I'd always knew that it was you know that I'm gonna really dumb this down. But Maverick was the good guy, and Iceman was the bad guy. You know, like you said it best. He's 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 the antagonist, but he's not necessarily a bad guy. Yeah. But it was crazy to watch this movie thinking that. You know everything that I know about like how these dynamics normally work in movies, and the entire time Iceman's just like, "You're unsafe, man. You got to be a little <laughs> bit more. You got to be a little bit more safe." And and I was like, "Oh, this is the bad guy or bad guy?" Saying quotations is like he just wants Maverick to use his fucking head and not get killed. <laughs> but he's he is cramping the style, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so. As I said, this was my first time seeing both Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick after I had a lot of um, hesitation from seeing it. Um, it was... Uh, I struggle with overly pro-war themes. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels a little too much like propaganda to me. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not necessarily opposed to war films because I think a lot of them do a good job of being like, see how fucking, see how much this this stuff sucks. Top Gun struggles with that a little bit, I think. Um, but I've been I've been opposed to seeing these. Um, not that I didn't want to, it just wasn't high on my list. Uh, but one of our longtime listeners, uh, who goes goes by the name Flounder, uh, he has been begging me to see Top Gun forever. <laughs> and I figured once you know the the new one came out and was really popular and with. 4th of July, right around either the time that this comes out, either right around the corner or right after, um, I felt like this was the perfect time to see this. Um, was this your first time seeing... I know it wasn't your first time, but what's your experience with Top Gun? Sure. So, growing up, I had seen bits and pieces of Top Gun like throughout my childhood. 
Um, my mom and my stepdad watched it quite a bit. And I just a like... a fucking movie. Yeah. And it's so f- interesting because like for anyone that's, you know, older than when that movie came out, it's not necessarily a super... It's not in our zeitgeist as much as it is for everyone that's like our parents. Like Yeah, for anyone just generation. like a little bit older than us. Yeah. Who was watching movies in the 80s. That movie was fucking huge. Yep. And I feel like it was... Our generation is just the very end of that because, like, a lot of media that we grew up with is talking about and referencing Top Gun. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, I think anyone younger than us, it's probably like, what? Yeah, it's just sort of a blip on our radar mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, but uh, for me, like, so I loved the character Goose. Oh, I loved Goose in this movie. Because as a Kid, I thought his name was silly as hell, which it is. Yes. And then um, I also like... Rooster's not much better, but it's a little right. bit cooler. I had uh, I had really long, spiky, blonde hair as a kid. I say this is, with love, I can't picture you with hair. Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and that, that, you know, Goose kind of had a little bit of that going on. Not uh-huh. like to the weird extent, you know, 10-year-old Kyle did. But... Um, <laughs> So I always liked that character and his like death was the scene that I always remembered because just hearing someone yell goose was just like, In, like laughable a sad to me. Way, yeah, 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 yeah. It was laughable as a kid to me. So I remembered that scene and I remembered the great balls of fire scene. You always go home with the hot women. All right. Thank you, Carol. I'm uh, going to go embarrass myself with goose for a while. But then I had no recollection of any of this until last year. Only thing I really knew was like the volleyball scene because I'd, oh, sure. I'd seen it on TV. And yeah, shit. totally. Yeah. yeah, it's like, I'm like, I remember that they had a volleyball scene. You know, I know there's a bunch of like dog fighting, but you know, you're like, don't know. Like I just, it's it all felt uh, kind of like at arm's length in the sense of like my brain didn't remember them vividly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, last year, uh, with Top Gun Maverick coming out, we knew just my wife and I we we knew we were gonna go see it. So I was like, well, we might as well watch Top Gun because she had never seen Top Gun. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I don't remember this movie at all. So last year I'd watched it and then we had seen Maverick like a week or two after that. So that was like, you know, coming back into it. Um, and it was like, it's wild. Like the first 10 minutes you realize just how, how different movies were back then, Mm -hmm. like how different big movies were back then. Just from the sheer fact that they played Danger Zone like three times in a row. Yeah. And you're like, oh my gosh, like what is this movie doing? <laughs> and then it does that with like all of the songs. Yeah, like it played that Berlin song, like, uh, what was it, uh, Last Breath You Take? Yeah. Like, they played that like at least twice. Um, yeah, which the new one didn't do nearly as well. Or didn't do nearly as much of. They played Danger Zone once, a respectful yep. amount of times. Yes. And they kept it safe. Yeah. 
and they didn't con- consistently go back to it. Though they went back to that theme song, like the the score, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say that I'm happy about with the way that these movies turned out, because I think one of the reasons I was really turned off from seeing Maverick, because like I had not seen. I think it was like I'm like you. I grew up with Top Gun in the ether. Yeah. It was just around. I'd right. seen scenes of it on television. You know, me and you are, are students of film, so we've seen enough like best of lists or things. We've seen it talked about a lot. It's one of those movies that like even though I hadn't seen, I felt like I had. Yes. Because I knew enough of about course. it. Um and much and I won't even say much to my surprise because it played up played out very similar to how I was expecting it to. It's a goofy movie. Oh yeah. It's a cool movie, but sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it takes itself too seriously, and sometimes it doesn't take itself seriously enough. Yeah. Like, I don't know tonally what they're going for. And the reason, one of the reasons I was so opposed to seeing Maverick is because all the promotional material for the film really felt like it didn't know what it was making. Meaning, all the promotional material felt so hyper-serious and what I knew about Top Gun was knowing that knowing that it is a little bit more goofy. It's a little bit more fun. All the promotional material that I had seen from Maverick took itself way too fucking seriously, and made it seem like they just made like a hyper serious legacy sequel to Top Gun where they missed the pulse. And yeah. I was really happy to see when we watched it that Top Gun Maverick is goofy as fuck. Oh yeah. Sometimes intentionally. Sometimes I don't think it was intentional. <laughs> Sometimes I just think it's they they were channeling just the right zeitgeist, where it just it just landed as being kind of goofy at times. Yeah, I mean I think it's important. I'm sure that most of the people listening have probably seen these movies, but it's important to like point out that the original Top Gun <laughs> is a film that feels like an '80s film. Yes, and that is both in what people might love about the 80s, but also very much what makes the 80s feel dated. Yes. You know, from the kind of synthy score that's used. To Which, you- as a fan of dumb synthy scores, it feels dated. Yeah. And, you know, and obviously it's got, like, this over-reliance on a soundtrack, which was pretty popular mm-hmm. back it's, then. It's overly jingoistic approach to the military, which was very much a trend at that time. Sure. Um, there's just a lot that's going on in that film that that you, like, know what time period it's in. Oh, yeah. So to see that stuff... You can watch ten minutes of that movie and know exactly... I was able to guess 1986 just because of the fucking aesthetics of that movie. Yeah, but that's somehow they were able to take all of that stuff that's still very 80s and stuff it into a movie that is very like modern mm-hmm. with Top Gun Maverick, and I feel like they did a good job of like. It didn't feel like they were doing like a Stranger Things type thing where like, look how much we love the 80s. Right. Like they took the way that, you know, films were written or made at that time and found a way to make it contemporary. But then also added more story. Like that was my biggest takeaway from the first Top Gun. Like there's, there's no conflict. 
for until the very end. Like there's there's not much story. Well, it's a very strange film in that respect because yeah. you you've got like you're just like following these people do, going through this class or whatever. Yeah, it's right? just watching kids in school. Yeah, kids. I say, and you but... get like there's like this you know the the stakes are hey I want to be the top of my class I want to be the top top gun or whatever you want to say um, and uh and you know it's just really kind of silly more than anything like that as the stakes are really ridiculous and then there's like a, and then like a fucking battle comes out of nowhere at the very yeah because like <laughs> what i knew about top gun was i knew airplanes i knew homoerotic beach volleyball yeah and i knew tom cruise occasionally riding a motorcycle right like that's what i knew and then you know danger zone Yes. I thought they were actively, when I was going into the movie, I thought they were just actively in combat. I didn't realize they're just pretend, like learning to be in combat. Yeah. I didn't realize fucking Goose died doing his homework, essentially. Like, And then they just kind of throw a battle in at the very end. Which is For like, some unnamed, unknown assailant. Yep. Which is the same that they do in Maverick too, but what's, at least they're building to that battle. Yeah, because it comes out of like absolutely nowhere. I'll say yeah, this. they're at their graduation party and be like, "You guys are being shipped off." Yeah, you're like, "What? What?" <laughs> and it's like this crazy battle. Which, by the way, like both of these films are also amazing at being like, "This is the top." Like we're gonna give you some top of the line crazy action sequence. We're putting cameras where they've never been before. We're going to cover this in a way that no one has ever seen. That's what made, I think, Top Gun um, so popular back I then. Just, I, if I could get my hands on the second unit shot list for the first Top Gun. Because like, let's be a lot of that was probably second unit. You know who knows? Who knows? But it's it's hard it's hard to know for sure. It's but made for fifteen million dollars. Yeah, like you know. But I, I, it would make the most sense to do have a second unit shooting that while you're shooting Tom Cruise and shit yeah, like that. yeah. But I want to see like I want to see the fucking shot list for that because it is kind of funny though that they shot all the the fighting sequence in Top Gun Maverick with IMAX cameras because of how huge they were. Because that was the first thing I noticed while watching Top Gun. Is like how'd they get these giant cameras into these things? Because now cameras have gotten so small and tiny, you can do it except when you're shooting fucking IMAX. Yeah. Those things are huge. Yeah, it's really. But you know, both of those films have like those action sequences at the end are great. Even in the original Top Gun, yeah, film, it's they, they hold up really fucking well. Yeah. Um, and I don't, you know, it's, so it's interesting that like, cause it comes out of nowhere and you're like, what, why, what does this have to do with anything we just watched? Like, I, f- I feel but like, then a, I, feel like a, I feel like riveted. if Howard Hughes would have been alive when that movie was made, he'd fucking lose his mind. Cause <laughs> a filmmaker and you know, uh, um, famous reckless, uh, Howard Hughes, he was trying to shoot dog fighting footage sure. back in like the forties. Yeah. And I feel like he'd lose his fucking mind if he would have seen that movie. Yeah. And they pull it off. Like, it's a great final sequence. But it does feel slightly out of place when you are when you get to it in the narrative. And then Top Gun Maverick does the exact opposite where, like, and that's, well, I don't know how much I'm going to be, maybe I'm skipping ahead too far. Eh, whatever. Um, but the the genius behind Top Gun Maverick is that, at least I believe, when you get to those final action sequences, for how 
you know, that, that movie, there are hit, things that are hit and miss about it until you get to that action sequence. Mm-hmm. Like, but when you get in that action sequence as an audience member, you are in it. Yeah. You are living it. You are on the edge of your seat. And uh, <laughs> so much of that has to do with how they built that up within the narrative itself. Mm-hmm. They start you off like, first act, they're like, here's the run-through of the crazy thing. And then like two or three times within that the movie, they like run through it again of like, this is what's going to go down. But what they do and what's genius about it is not only A, is two things. One is the thing that they have to do is pretty insane. Yeah. They got to go through this crazy ravine thing, go up this mountain. Just like Star Wars. Yeah, go down this mountain, sh- shoot the Death Star, and then climb back up it. But then and the, then climb back out of it in a way where they're gonna then be picked up by the, the 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 rockets. Yeah, but that's so the you know the the first thing that's crazy is just like hearing how they're gonna do it. You're like that sounds nuts. But then the second thing is, every time in the movie before you get to that like action scene, when they talk about this mission, they do not talk at all about how they're gonna survive after. No. And so you kind of, like, as an audience member, you kind of forget about it. Mm -hmm. So you get to the action scene at the end, and you're like, fuck, this thing's crazy. Oh, man, it's as crazy as we thought it would be. And then they get up the mountain, and you're like, yeah, man, they're done. They got this. And then the shit hits the fan, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it's like (laughs) one thing the movie actually does that I also think is genius is... um, the audience member is kind of a surrogate for these Top Gun graduates. Because the line that sticks out to me very is when, um, I think it was John Hamm's character, when he and he's talking to Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise is like, you know, this, this mission is impossible. And he's like, yeah, this entire time you've just been telling him how it's impossible to accomplish. And you're like, and as an audience member, we're like, yeah, how the fuck are they going to survive this? <laughs> and then you get the scene of Tom Cruise showing that it can be done. Yeah. And even done better than they had planned. Mm -hmm. And then it makes us, the audience, just just as these characters are feeling like, oh, maybe this is possible, it's making us as the audience feel like it's possible as well. It's very clever writing in that way. Yeah. And what I I like that Top Gun Maverick did is it took the glaring issues the first Top Gun has and tries to correct them. It's not to say that Top Gun Maverick does not have issues of its own when it comes to storytelling and and characterization but the biggest thing i'll give it credit for it took a character that i legitimately did not fucking like in maverick i just thought he was a a, a pretentious piece of shit and i was like i don't give a fuck what happens to him and it makes me actually give a fuck well and i and i think big part of and i was saying this when we watched it they made him a fucking loser yeah Instead of being like, look how cool I am, and look how great my life and career has been. I was like, no, dude, you can't get... He's like one of those old pro wrestlers who just won't get out of the ring. Well, so everyone behind these movies, I feel like is pretty smart. Because even like... So Top Gun, everyone, I think, goes into it nowadays thinking like, oh yeah, Tom Cruise, he's the the main guy, like he's going to be the good guy, whatever. But what the movie is about is it's about like, hey, you you have to like learn to trust other people. 
You have to have other people's backs. Because he is the actual maverick mm -hmm. that just goes off and does whatever the hell he wants. And then by the end of the movie, he's the one that's, you know, helping. He and Val Kilmer are working together to, you know, eradicate the, what is it? Is it the Chinese in that one? Is yeah, what it what, like what it feels like? And it's, then in this one, it's the Russian. The miscellaneous bad guy. Yeah, miscellaneous bad guy. Yeah. I.e. the Chinese yeah. in, the, in Top Gun. <laughs> and then... Uh, but they, you know, everyone knows, like, that's like a, he's got his character arc, but he's still that guy. He's still that cocky son of a bitch. And that guy's not going to have an actual career. No. He's not going to, that was another funny thing. Just like, oh, if you graduate Top Gun, you could teach Top Gun. Like, oh, cool. Ooh. Like, it's just, it, it, you know how much teachers make? No. <laughs> Tom, Tom Cruise just wanted to just wants to fly, and that's all he is doing. By the time Maverick comes around, I just feel like he just keeps shuffling off of whatever job will let him fly a plane. Yeah. But what's fascinating about how he starts off in Maverick is he still keeps the lessons they learned from Top Gun in the sense of he's still like a team player now. Like he grew into being a team player at the end of Top Gun. Mm -hmm. Now he's all about people. Like that whole opening scene where he's going mock, was it 10, 10. or 11? <laughs> you know, he, the whole reason he's doing it is because he wants those people to have a job. Mm -hmm. So he's still like doing all these things for the right reason, but now doing the things for the right reason is also pushing the buttons of, you know, like of the bureaucracy. <laughs> he's still so finding a way to be, to, be the rebellious jerk yeah just in a different way yeah now. and now he's a jerk against the people that the audience wants him to be a jerk against mm -hmm. instead of in the first movie he is just a jerk against people where you're like well you shouldn't really be that you know um and then what they do great is they pit they pit the new people as a uh rooster and uh what's the oh hangman yeah you know are now yes <laughs> But Rooster and Hangman now are Maverick and Ice, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, the person, you know, Rooster is the one that you think is going to be Tom Cruise. Like, he's the Tom Cruise of the movie in the sense of, as the audience, we're following the story through his eyes more than we're following the story through Hangman's eyes. But he is, he is the Iceman mm -hmm. of those two people. But almost to his detriment, because like Iceman was cautious, but also still cocky in his own right. That's where true. Rooster is still finding his confidence yes. in his airplane. Very much made evident by in that that ending, like in once the the big shit starts happening, and he's struggling keeping up because I think yeah. he's second guessing himself. And then on the flip side of that, Hangman still at that point in the movie hadn't learned how to be a teammate yet. Mm -hmm. So that's why he doesn't get like the job, mm -hmm. you know? So they do a very interesting, like, you know, mirror. I feel like that feels like it pays off. The whiteboard for this movie in the scripting phase was really interesting. Cause I feel like they, they just had all these character dynamics that they wanted to incorporate into it. Um, and I just feel like this movie probably had 
I would love to see like how they outlined it because it just everything just there's so many setups that have payoffs. Yeah. Whereas in the first film, it didn't really like you kind of have your big dramatic moment of Goose dying. You have your dog fights. But even the relations, even like the eventual friendship between Iceman and Maverick does not really feel earned in that first film. Yeah, it's a different... It's just a different type of storytelling. Yeah, right. It's different storytelling from back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... Uh, yeah, the whole thing is... It's interesting like how much... there's. It's interesting how much Top Gun is in Top Gun Maverick. Mm-hmm. Like... How do I want to put this? In many ways, Top Gun Maverick is genius because there are so many things that in lesser hands, you would just roll your eyes at the amount of, just the sheer amount of like callbacks to Top Gun yeah. that is in the movie. Yeah. and But it does kind of pull them off. It pulls them off. Some I feel like others. it just, yeah. it almost gets to the point of being too much. And if I had a big complaint about the film, is I would I think they still rely on it too much. But I I don't know. I feel like over the years I've become way more um, critical yeah. about callbacks in a way. It, uh, if they're not doing something interesting or doing something different with them, cutting back to flashbacks, I think is oh yeah is lame, ridiculous. You know, like say, yeah. but then you have something like say like Halloween Kills where they're recreating these moments to yeah. expand upon, that's a little different because it's expanding upon the story. Yeah. Um, but then it also uses nostalgia in a weird way where I feel like it makes you question your own sanity for a couple scenes where when they introduce Jennifer Connelly's character and they're talking about her in this nostalgic way, but who do, are we supposed to know who she is? And it's like almost using nostalgia against us just so we'll believe that they know each other for a long time. It's true. It's a weird technique. I don't know if it works, but I had some whiplash because then I'm like, who the fuck is this? Yeah, because everyone else you know. And, yeah. like, and they could, why didn't they just bring back Charlie? Even if they couldn't get that actor, why didn't they just make it that character? Yeah. Because then there would be a built-in yeah. thing between them. I agree with you on that. Completely. Like that was a weird choice and then hell even he was greeting the dog in a way like as if we're supposed to know like who is this dog? Yeah, the dog at the bar yeah. they're even make, like is this the same bar that they're even going to in the first like, yeah. i couldn't quite tell it's like but i was just kind of going with it because they all spoke about it in such a confidence it's like oh this must be people we know or it also almost seems like she lives in the same house yeah i noticed that too it it's very strange and i just kept thinking it's like was there a Top Gun 2 that I missed? And it's a... Because it's a weird thing. Because I'll say this. Because they wrote this like Top Gun 3 almost. That's... Yeah. In ways. There is so much of Top Gun within Top Gun Maverick that I almost feel like you need to see Top Gun. Without... Yes. Like, if I were to have gone and saw Maverick without having seen Top Gun before. I'm like, I'm trying to picture that in my brain and I'm going... I don't think a movie would work. Yeah, because I'm like, I think like, like what is the some weird of the se- score? What is some the- of the sequences would have still like, you know, things that work well on a technical aspect would still work well, but uh, Top Gun Maverick is paying off things that they set up in the first Top Gun that they never paid off for, mm-hmm. you know. And I think with just like to get Tom Cruise's character arc that he has in the second film. You need to see what they built up in the first one because he never truly has a... He arcs in that film, 
but it's a very lackadaisical arc. Yeah. Um, they almost need to be viewed as viewed as one piece. Yeah. But there's so many elements. Like we've talked about it uh, when we were watching or rewatching Top Gun Maverick. Like they use the original score a lot, and that score Which is, does not match. Yeah. The nuke score. Exactly. At all. And then the same is true with the soundtrack. Like the only reason the soundtrack gets away with it is because if you've watched Top Gun, that's what they did, is they just had a lot of soundtrack, like a lot of songs in that um in that movie. So when you get to like the football on the beach scene and there's uh what's the what's the band name? I'm trying to remember what band uh has that song. Kenny Loggins? No, 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 in the in the new film. Oh. Um, um, One Republic, I think, is the name of the band. Yeah, that song just does not fit that movie. Yeah, it doesn't really quite fit. But as someone who's seen Top Gun, you go, oh, yeah, that's what's supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird, strange thing where your brain is going, this stuff kind of makes sense because it happened in the original one. And so it kind of works. But then you get to something like Jennifer Connelly's character, who, by the way, like... Jennifer Connelly does an amazing job selling you the best that she can with that character. Yeah, because she, she's not given much to work with. Right. But she, like, but that character is a very strange, like, what is going on here? Like, yeah. The, it, it's a little off kilter. And it's, it also does, like, a good job explaining things from the first film. Mm-hmm. Like, that that beach volleyball scene in the first film feels so fucking random. Like again, yeah, they're they're a bunch of guys who are just trying to have some fun playing beach volleyball. Yeah. But then in the second one, when they're recreating it, but playing like football, and Tom Cruise gives that kind of passing dialogue. Well, this this is how they're going to learn to play as a team. Sir, what is this? It's dogfight football, offense and defense at the same time. Who's winning? I think they stopped keeping score a while ago. This detachment still has some training to complete, Captain. Every available minute matters. Yes, sir. So why are we out here playing games? You said to create a team, sir. There's your team. Like, oh, okay, then add some context to that kind of seemingly random scene from the first film. Even if that's not what their intent was when they made the first film, it adds after-the-fact context. Yeah. So it doesn't feel as random as a beach volleyball scene can feel. Well, and it's an interesting thing because it's like that beach volleyball scene. Part of me, you know, the cynical part of me goes, that scene is the way it is because, you know, they're just trying to put, you know, asses in seats. So you got like, ooh, the sexy men in Everyone doing wants the to see Val Kilmer without a shirt. Like, right, exactly. Right. So you're like, you know, the cynical part of me is like, that's the sole reason why that's there. Then the other part of me, though, is going, or is that just how movies presented that kind of like team building kind of thing back then? Yeah. Where they didn't feel like they had to go out and say it. Whereas now you get to the football scene and they come out and say like, this is why we're doing it. It's true. It. I guess I haven't viewed it that way. Is It could be a, a case of over-reliance on holding the audience's hand. Yeah. But it does work. Like I mm-hmm. also feel like it's clever. Mm-hmm. But it is an interesting, like, is this just how storytelling has changed? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I I still feel like the more cynical part of me wins out, and it was just like a 80s, like, let's get these oiled up dudes 
with their abs out. And realistically, there's probably the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, but you mentioning that you know maybe it's just over reliance nowadays on on I don't remember exactly how you worded it, but yeah, just telling the audience what's going telling on. the audience what's going on. They had that early on where they just kept cutting back to the flashbacks of Goose dying. And it's not even just they cut back to it. They cut back to the same shot a couple times. And it's, I, I, all that wasn't needed. You know, I'm just thinking, what would this movie, what would the movie, would... Yes, people who are coming off the street who haven't seen the first Top Gun probably would be a little lost. But I feel like you see Tom Cruise, you see the pictures of Goose that he still has. You eventually learn the, the relationship between him and Goose's son. And his fucking son's name is Rooster. All that wouldn't, you know, those those heavy-handed flashbacks aren't needed. Yeah, I agree. But it's the audience is 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 subtle in some ways that filmmaking has gotten over the years, and I think it's also taken quite a few steps back in visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. Because I, now it's like now now films are made by so much so by committee, where you have people who are just giving notes just to be heard. And if anyone in a meeting is like, is this clear? What's going on? Well, then they have to go back and <laughs> right. add, or the amount of times that we've both probably watched movies and you can tell that a line of dialogue explaining something was added via ADR because someone was probably was either confused or wanted to make sure that no one could possibly be confused. Yeah. And it reminds me of like um, Kubrick. He used to have different cuts of his films for American audiences versus European audiences. And his um, European cuts of the film were usually a little shorter because he didn't have to hold the audience's hand as much. Makes sense. He didn't have to have as many, much dialogue explaining shit. or Yeah. You know, and then you had Hitchcock, on the other hand, who truly believed in holding the audience's hand. Yeah. And he said one time in an interview, he's like, I could make a movie that appeals to the intellectuals and then alienate the, the common fans... Or I can make a movie that explains stuff for the common fans that the intellectuals will probably still appreciate and appeal to everyone. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to know that you know Hitchcock had that thought process. Well, Macquarie has done like a really good job um, of doing that throughout his Mission Impossible movies. Mm-hmm. Like those movies are kind of like that style of filmmaking, that genre lends itself to this like very dense you know, plotted out kind of thing. Like this has to happen. So this happens. So this happens. So the it's world is kind of like a die. Bond film in that way right. where there's just like, yeah. it's almost a Rube Goldberg mach- uh, machine of plot. Yeah. But Macquarie's got like become kind of like a master of delivering that in ways that feels really good to the audience where you're not getting it spoon fed to use per se, or if the times where it is like heavy it's interesting and it's quick. Mm-hmm. And you get in, you get out, and you're boom, you're done. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, the, the trick with Maverick that they do, like I kind of said earlier, is they explain the, like, the thing that they're going to go do a few different times. Um, yeah, they really build up the um, impossible nature of it. Yeah. Instead of just saying it once and hoping that we grasp onto it it's they're they're really building up the impossible situation of it all um and i think that's smart because it's kind of like what rocky four did with with ivan drago they had to really build up the thought of this guy's fucking unbeatable 
So much so that they had him kill a main character in the beginning of the film just to prove how fucking of a monster this guy is. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting just, like you said earlier, the how different yet how similar they are in that way. Because, like, Top Gun Maverick is definitely made for for modern audiences. Totally. But it's also the type of movie that movies like the first Top Gun were ushering in. Yeah. Because um, the 80s were a pivotal time from pretty much like the late 70s at Star Wars to about through the 80s. The, the, the idea of a blockbuster was changing. Well, and I love, I think what's really refreshing about Top Gun Maverick, the reason so many people went to see it and it got such like a rave response is because you don't see action set pieces like this anymore. Um, it's like, you know, like the biggest like action movie of our time, so to speak, right now is the Avengers Endgame, right? That's the movie that made the most money for a while. That's what like That's what the action general, films are. Right yeah, now. consensus of the general public, not ourselves, but the general public. Mm-hmm. That's the movie. But you go into the ending of that film, and you know exactly how everything's going to happen. And the things that you cheer for in a movie like that, like Captain America getting Thor's hammer, are all these things that like amp you up, and you're like, yeah, cool, I gotta see that thing. And now I'm getting to see the like good guys destroy these bad guys. But you knew it was going to happen. It's mm-hmm. just like Spider-Man Homecoming. Everyone heard that the Spider-People were going to be in that movie. The Spider-People. Right. <laughs> and then they were there and everyone was elated and jazzed. Like, hell yeah, we knew this was... Co- it, people want... People love writing their own fan fiction and yeah. want it to come true. Yeah, but what people have been missing and what Top Gun delivers on is it gives you something completely different. Like, it gives you... It isn't just there to like fulfill what you want to see out of a out of the superhero action thing. It like makes you have to watch it. You like are stuck watching it, wondering how it's going to go down. Instead of knowing how it's going to go down, you're wondering how it's going to go down. Yeah, and we don't really get that much anymore. No, um, and like you know, like, even yeah. with something say franchises like Mission Impossible or James Bond. It has a similar quality to that of Endgame. Because you know in the end, James yeah. Bond is going to win. You know Ethan Hunt is going to win. Yeah. You don't necessarily know how. Right. But you know more than likely he's yeah. going to win. Something like Top Gun, I don't. Uh, and, that, and it's interesting. Yeah, you don't know who's going to die. You... Yeah. It's, it's like I... Action films in themselves have significantly changed over the years. Um, you know, gone are the days of like Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme and shit like that. They still make movies like that, but for a fraction of the budget, that just go straight to Netflix or whatever. And, you know, it's it's been a while since we've you've seen a big budget action film that's not tied to a franchise. Yeah. I think that's the reason the first John Wick movie hit people so much. It's like, here's a fucking brand new yeah. character who's doing old school action shit, you know, now that's become a franchise of its own. And I'm not here to like shit on franchises or anything. No, no. Like I 
fucking i have both a halloween and a friday the 13th tattoo <laughs> like i'm i'm okay with franchises um but i feel like if if top gun maverick has taught us anything even though also part of a franchise now um i feel like if it's taught us anything it's like people are they want high quality big budget entertainment just done differently now yeah and it's so practical too like so much of that yeah. is practical or at least it feels practical mm-hmm. compared to what you're seeing nowadays yeah, like, look at that. i think that's part of the reason why the fury road did so well yeah totally 100 percent um the another thing about uh that final action sequence though too with um you go into it and you kind of go "Ooh, who's gonna die here mm-hmm. but it they, the they story this out a couple times with that too and yet it's exactly how it should be like no one should actually die because the whole premise of maverick's character in this film is that like he has seen death and he is trying his best to make sure no one dies on this mission and in order for him to like actually succeed and actually get over the hump that's what he has to accomplish not the mission itself he has to accomplish everyone getting out of there alive it's subtle and Mm -hmm. we don't necessarily as the audience realize that that's what the movie is about but that's actually what the like the hero's journey is in this film um but it does such a good job of making you think like someone might die yeah. that your brain is the, kind of to expecting it. To the point it. where like, when Maverick sacrifices himself at the yeah. end of the film, I really get the feeling that he was okay with his fate. Yeah. That he knew when he did that, he's probably not getting out of that. Yeah. But yeah, but the whole real part of it was like, no, they're going to do what they couldn't do last time. They're going to actually make sure everyone comes out alive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting, like... Yeah, because everyone's waiting story. for it, especially with knowing, like, the story between Maverick and Goose. Everyone's waiting for that moment recreated, yep. however that might that be. True. And because they teased uh, a couple deaths, you know, like, um, um, during their... Um, their practice runs of people like blacking out while doing this and almost not coming to on time. So they're like, they're teasing you with it, Mm -hmm. but they don't actually need to execute it. And I think that's, I think ultimately that's, I think what's truly missing from action films. And it's not that we don't want our heroes to make it out. We want to just believe for a moment that they won't. Yeah. Like, I think that's one thing that the new Bond films do really well. The older ones didn't necessarily, but the old James Bond films were made in a very different style. But with the Daniel Craig films, we know that he is going to probably walk away from this, but they make us question it quite Mm -hmm. a few times. Yeah. Um, Whereas with the Avengers films... And I say Avengers films is pretty much just lumping all the Marvel fare into one thing. You know, like let's use Thor: um, Love and Thunder as an example. There was never a point in that film where I thought Thor was not going to just win at the end of the day. Sure. You know, even Thor Ragnarok, I always knew that in the end he was. Yeah. You know, even when he was getting beat down, it was never that. Like I never once thought, oh, he's not making it out of this. 
Yeah, and part of it is the comic bookiness of just that's the genre is that superheroes don't die is kind of the genre. But it isn't fun, you know. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, you mentioned, and you're right, that uh, Avengers Endgame was like one of the highest, made the most money or whatever. But everything after that is fucking struggled. Yeah. Because they never put stakes that matter. Yeah. You know, people loved Infinity War. A lot of people did. Um, I, I could talk about that, too. <laughs> and, not, and I don't want to turn this into a Avengers you know, podcast. Um, but people liked, I think, Infinity War because it did introduce some stakes. Yes, yes. My problem with it was I always knew those stakes were fake. Yeah. So I didn't like, I didn't care for that ending because I knew all those characters were going to come back alive. Um, and that I knew like, okay, so now I know that Tony Stark is going to die in the next one and everyone's going to, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, as an audience member, so sometimes you <laughs> I, want I, movies I that say, where you know things. I just, I just but. do have to say like Tony Stark dying did not hit me nearly as emotionally as Yondu dying in Guardians 2. Oh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Because you're not expecting it. Yeah. First off, like that yeah. is part of it is you're not expecting it. Mm-hmm. But they also really built that relationship up. Yeah. Um, really well. I love, yeah, you and I are like a few of the only people on this planet who think like Guardians 2 might be the best. Guardians. It is the best movie that Marvel's put out. <laughs> Hands down. I love Guardians 2. Yeah. Um, but anyway, not to derail this the one thing we should probably talk about before we end you know any of this i don't know how um pretty much i just go i just just go until we run out of steam okay well there's one last thing that needs to at least be mentioned Mm -hmm. which is my favorite batman of all time val kilmer yes um i love him in both of these movies i think he's great and actually and i love this quote that I, i found very recently from roger ebert where roger ebert says val kilmer is the most it was either the unsung hero of like uh, leading men or the most underappreciated leading man. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it's something along those lines. And it's true. Yeah. Like there was a period of time where Val Kilmer was kind of, you know, like mo- like a lot of big leading men kind of had his head up his ass a little bit. Yeah. But he's always consistently bringing a good fucking performance. And these movies are, are the only the only issue with these movies is he's just not in them enough. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I love, you know, like the whole Iceman, right away, both you and I were watching, you know, when we watched Top Gun together, we're like, yeah, man, like I get what Iceman's going for. Yeah, like, like you should really listen to him, Maverick. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact, though, that they both found out a way to like have respect for each other is great, you know, it's mm-hmm. a classic. No, he's, he's great. But like, he's good as that cocky guy that you're all, you're like... Yeah, but I agree with you. I kind of agree with yeah, you. Yeah, like, earlier in this <laughs> season, um, back when Nick was still doing the show with me, we did an episode on Willow. Okay. And Val Kilmer was like the best part about that movie. Okay. Yeah, that's Val Kilmer in it. like a sword and sorcery type of you know fantasy movie, <laughs> um, and a young Val Kilmer too. Uh, anyone listening, I've I've I've, sang, I've sung the praises for this movie for a long time. But if anyone wants to see how good Val Kilmer can be, go watch like his, it was one of his first films. It's called Real Genius, where he plays a a, a genius in a in a college who is just he's the smartest person on campus. He's just bored. 
and doesn't and doesn't apply himself because he he's just bored. Uh, and it is one of the most charming, just chaotic performances ever. He's great in it. Nice. I thought they did a really wonderful job of bringing him back in yes. to the movie and giving the movie some heart through him. Yes, and it's a character I don't think people were expecting to be the heart for the film. Yeah. And I love, like, I think that's one thing my wife Amanda even mentioned, is she just loved that they became friends. Yeah. Because, like, when we watched the first one, she was watching it with us, but I don't feel like she was nearly, is really as engaged. Um, but she's right. Like, the, the all, like even she like, was admitting, like, that is, like, the heart of that of this film and any soften any any bit that maverick might have softened is because of iceman Mm -hmm. and i don't mean softened as a bad way it's like softened in that he's still fucking alive and still has a has a job well you know it's like and again it's like the the payoff of the first film they both learn lessons and they both gained respect for each other at the end of it and now we got to see how that paid off Mm-hmm. Um, and to bring Val Kilmer back, like, you know, he has a few, like, lines at the end of the scene that he's in, but even before then, like, just the amount of emotion that he can show in he's his face. He's still, like, just, he's acting. Yeah. I think, because I think so many people, when they think of acting, they just think of how lines are said. Not even, like... The, like everything else that goes into it, they just think of like purely does this line sound good? Does this line sound bad? I feel like mostly a lot of people, even big movie fans, don't know what they're looking for when it comes to a performance and just how good he he's stealing that scene from Tom Cruise and he's not even fucking talking. Yeah, right. And Tom Cruise is, I've never thought he was an incredible actor. I think he's got a great presence. There haven't been a lot of like, Tom Cruise performances that have just like, wowed me. Okay, it's been movies he's been in that I've really liked, but but he's still like a, a fine, credible actor. But Val Kilmer acted circles around him, and he didn't even fucking talk in that scene. I think that Cruise knows what he's supposed to be in that scene. Though. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think he was necessarily trying to take the scene yeah. away. If 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 Cruise is a smart actor in that he knows. That acting's a give and take, and he's giving Val Kilmer everything he needs to yeah. to do that scene well, which goes to show you how good of an actor Tom Cruise actually is. Have you seen Collateral? Yes, Tom, that is one that's, of the movies that blew me away. It changed my opinion on Tom Cruise. Yeah, that's one of my favorites of him. He's pretty damn good, and like, you know, I know it's probably not as politically correct nowadays, but like Last Samurai, he's pretty damn. Yeah, good. Yeah, or movie. like uh, what's that one? Um, what's the P.T. Anderson film Magnolia? Oh sure, yeah. Those little fucking ponytail. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, he, it's funny. Like, they've somehow built a character for him in these Mission Impossible movies that doesn't really feel like it's there in the first couple. Um, yeah. So they've done a good job with that too. Like, I I love the first Mission Impossible. Yeah. Because uh, I'm also just a huge Brian De Palma fan. He's kind of playing Maverick in that movie. Yes. Too, he's a little got that cockiness. Yeah, him. and I feel like that's just kind of like young Tom Cruise. Like, yeah. He had he had a very different persona in the eighties. Yeah. Um also a different smile in the eighties than he yes. has. Yes, before they fixed it. Um and then like 
while I loved Mission Impossible 2 as a kid, <laughs> yes. there's not much to that movie. <laughs> um, you know, it's just John Woo, just John Woo in the fuck out of that movie. Um, He's the Woo. Yeah. But, yeah, it's like, it's it's. I feel like I'm glad to see, well, I've not seen any of them. No, I've seen a couple of them. I haven't seen the, I don't think I've seen the last, like, two. Okay. I saw the first three, and I think I saw the one after. So I think I saw the first four. Okay. Um, I'm glad to see that they are. There's some cohesion now with these films because, like, those first three movies, other than having the same character, do not feel like they should be from the same fucking franchise. I kind of like dug that about. Like, I'll be honest, I kind of dug that about the franchise was that it was like, like every movie's kind of its own crazy thing, mm-hmm. and it is. That's the one thing that saddens me a little bit about the fact that they like brought Macquarie back for all these films but I'll say this like in Macquarie's favor the two films he made Rogue Nation and um Fallout, uh, Fallout are very different feeling movies okay um and that's really cool like it's really fucking cool yeah uh, and I'm sure that this Dead Reckoning uh movie that's split into two movies for whatever reason um that that'll be another solid film but regardless of all that uh yeah tom cruise has like found a way within the last bunch of years to like reclaim a resurgence part of it is through these movies you know that have such nostalgia with people um like top gun it's kind of funny him and him and nicholas cage have had a weirdly similar 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 career but a very diminishing result like returns like they have found a way to, you know, be go from young promising actors to big time leading men, then started finding weird little personal projects that they wanted to do that they could lend their name to, and then both developed a persona that they're playing in their films. Yeah. And I said they've had a very similar career but just had very different ways that they've turned out for them. Yeah. Um, one, uh, not to, you know, before I made it a Marvel podcast, not to turn it into a Tom Cruise <laughs> podcast, uh, obviously the, his role in Tropic Thunder is legendary because it's so yes. bizarre for him. Yes. And then the other film that I actually think is just fantastic is Edge of Tomorrow. Um, so we've not, have not seen that one, even though I, I own it. I just, it's one that like, I just keep thinking, oh man, I want to watch this movie and I just keep putting it off for whatever reason. I randomly saw it in the movie theater when it came out because I watched the trailer. And, you know, Tom Cruise gets, like, a lot of, like, you know, you say his name and there's a lot of negative reactions to him and all this. But I've always, like, I don't know, I've just always respected the movies that he's made. Like, I just feel like he, more times than not, he knows how to choose it out of the park. Or and, he he knows how to choose something he can work with because he also has his people that he'll yeah. have do rewrites and and I was just like I remember seeing the trailer for Edge of Tomorrow and being like this looks ridiculous like I gotta go see this this looks cool as hell and I was right it's cool as fuck like it's an amazing film um, really great action sci fi movie with a lot of heart in it and I think Tom Cruise has a great performance in it he's doing an he's playing a little bit of that. Well, the way that he starts off the movie is very unexpected for a Tom Cruise character. 
Okay. Um, and it's quite interesting to see him pull that kind of character off. Okay. No, it's been one I've been definitely excited to see because I like, I like the idea of like a sci-fi action film. Uh, also has just notoriously incredible sound design. Yeah. To the point, this is a little bit of a tangent. To the point where that movie was no, in my home theater forms was known as a home theater killer. Whoa! First, the so it's going to be a little bit of a tangent. Um, when it comes to to audio, there's something known as reference audio, reference level. Um, usually, when it's in the mixing stage, um, they have their uh, their audio set to reference. Um, which is usually when, if you're playing pink noise through each speaker, it's hitting about 75 to 85 decibels. So that way all of your speakers are set to the same level. And you know if you play at what at reference, which is um, 0 dB, um, theoretically if you listen to reference on, your, on any system, it will sound the way that the creators intended it to sound. Okay. A lot of people watch their movies at reference right away without like previewing the movie first to see what the peaks and valleys are going to be like yeah to give you an idea reference audio it uses um i think it uses a uh, i don't know if it's absolute or relevant scale meaning it the it it goes zero is reference and then it goes uh up to plus 18 decibels from there okay and then below reference is i think goes all the way down to like negative 45 so, like, if zero is the loudest where you set your speakers to, yesterday when we were watching um, uh, Top Gun, we were about negative 15 Okay. from reference. So it was loud, but not quite yep. to the loudest point. A lot of people just start theirs at zero, which is reference. That The beginning 30 seconds of that movie has a, base, has, a, has a base wave that hits so low that if you have your stuff, stuff set too high and you're not ready for it and your subwoofer's not ready for it, it'll blow your subwoofer. Whoa. Because it goes so low to the point that a lot of subwoofers can't even accurately recreate it. That's Mine's cool. not powerful enough to recreate it. Wow. And it's, it was so much so that when they re-released the movie on 4K, they curved that because it was wrecking people's interesting. systems. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it was notoriously a home theater killer. Okay. <laughs> Which is not going to be interesting for anyone who's probably listening to this show. <laughs> I don't know, man. I feel like at this point in time with the... Because you talk quite a bit about your home theater stuff. Mm -hmm. That I feel like you should have the home theater audience as part of the audience that listens to podcasts. You'd think, but, you know, I, don't, I guess I don't know who's listening to this, to this show. I don't know what my audience is. They haven't made themselves very, very prevalent. Uh, so if you want more home theater content, let me know, and I'll talk about it more. I'm always just worried about, bo like, boring people. Sure. But, no, watching that, re-watching those movies at your house with that sound system was a treat. I got back to my house, and I played something, and I was like, I can't hear anything that sounds like crap. <laughs> and, like, I, you know, all things considered, you have a, you have a pretty decent sound bar. Like, I, yeah. I, I highly recommended that one to yeah. you. Yeah. But ultimately, when it comes to sound, um, you know, it all comes down to frequencies. Low frequencies, high frequencies, mid-range. 
most speakers usually live within the mid range to a little bit high. Um, you know, if something's piercing your ear means it's 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 got too much of the high range. If it's really bassy, it's low range. Um, most times, like a sound bar, it can get those mid ranges, maybe a little bit high, but it cannot fucking handle any bass. Sure. Um, you know, with when I got my speakers, it's got a high, it, the frequency can go down lower, obviously, because it's got these nice big woofers on them. And then adding a subwoofer just makes it allow, allow it to go down even deeper. So essentially, just by getting better speakers, I'm my system's able to play far more frequencies than, say, a soundbar can, and especially more than a TV can. Because, yeah. like, in comparison, you know how big the, the woofers are on my yeah. sub, on my, um, speakers the tv they're about the size of my thumbnail okay so it's just you can just play more effectively makes sense yeah it's fun it's like being in a mini movie theater and that was the goal <laughs> and if you get a chance to audience members especially top gun maverick like watching it in a with a robust audio system yeah it's it definitely a way to go like what i always tell people if you can't afford to get like separate speakers, a receiver, all that, I get it. It's not. It's it's also not for everyone to take take up a lot. Of, like my living room is pretty much dedicated to that, and I won't budge on some things. Like I, you know, I need my speakers to be at least thirty degrees apart from each other. I my my rear speakers are about one hundred and ten degrees apart from my from my listening position. My overheads are about fifty five. Like I have it all down to fucking. Tri- I retaught myself trigonometry so I could set these up correctly. And because of that, like I, my speakers are gonna be in this spot, and there's I'm not gonna budge on where they go. You can do anything you want around them, but they're gonna be here. I get that. It's not everyone has the real <laughs> estate for that, and everyone's not as anal about it as I am. But do yourself a favor and at least get a decent soundboard. <laughs> if you're gonna, if you truly, if you truly love these movies. And if you're watching Top Gun Maverick with your television speakers, you're not watching Top Gun Maverick. That's true. Is what I'm going to say. 100%. And, uh, not to be like that guy, but... <laughs> and when I get speakers, Michael's definitely setting mine up because I got a <laughs> F-16 in math once, and uh, I'm not going to try to learn trigonometry. <laughs> oh, I've got, I've got tricks. I got, I got tricks-onometry. Uh, hey, that's work. nice. I like it. Tricks-onometry. <laughs> Very good. Uh, was there anything you want to, you want to talk about with Top Gun Maverick, or Tom Cruise, or the Marvel films, or storytelling in the eighties versus now? Yes. Oh, We've talked about a lot in this yeah. episode. Yeah, hopefully it's it's a good listen. Um, I don't feel like it. I feel like we covered some good stuff. I, you know, there's there are other people who could talk about you know the how Top Gun Maverick saved or didn't save the movies mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. Like, And ultimately, when yeah. it comes down to it, I, I will even admit for myself, I struggle more with talking about newer films than older films because I, off mic, me and Kyle were talking about this. I'm, I'm a research junkie. I like context. I like digging into things, figuring out where you know this film falls in, say, a director's filmography, a writer's filmography, what came before, what came after, you know, looking back... There's far better critics out there who can talk about new media better than I can, but I felt like this was a great opportunity to finally knock this off my shame list and Good. also hang out with 
my best friend for like yeah three times in one week which with our schedules normally we can't do (laughs) no i'm actually surprised we're able to do this yeah no this is great uh it's amazing that lined up this way it was fun to like talk about these because yeah i was a big fan when maverick came out so i was glad that you got the chance to watch them. I'm glad we got to watch them together. Definitely. And for those of you keeping track at home and want to know what's on the horizon for the Shameless Picture Show, um, keep in mind I am recording this way in advance. So uh, so the next episode that will be released is going to be Once Upon a Time in America, Sergio Leone's film, mm-hmm. um, which I'll be doing with Christopher Kai House of the Twisted Dreams Film Festival. After that, I'll be talking about Elaine May's film from 1976, Mickey and, oh, sorry, Mikey and Nikki, with uh, filmmaker Drew Britton. Oh, okay. um, after that, I'll be doing, I'm going to mispronounce this Italian title, Buo Omega, which I think its its American title is like In the House of Darkness or something like that. Anyways, it's it's an Italian horror film uh, directed by Joe D'Amato with uh, with uh, burlesque artist Katie Cadaver. And then um, after that, I'll be doing Eli Kazan's fi- film A Face in the Crowd with Nick Spacek oh. of the f- of the podcast Carnage Report. Uh, I'll just go through the rest of the season in case you guys are curious. Uh, after that, I'll be with uh, I'll be doing Martin Ritt's film Norma Ray with John Connolly. After that, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard with both Eric Arsnow and Nick Aldrich, which should be a good one. Uh, After that, I have Blue Velvet, uh, David Lynch's (laughs) film, with my friend Josephine and her friend, who's a graphic designer named Rachel. After that, we're doing the film, the Japanese film from 1977, House. Oh, very nice. Also with a guest by the name of John Connolly. Then we're going to go Polish, and we're going to do Andrzej Zulowski's Possession from 1981, with both Eric Arsenal and my friend Josephine. Then we're going to do uh, Seven Samurai with Mark Krofcheck. And then finally, we're going to end the season with probably the biggest movie, A Very Brady Christmas, <laughs> which Nick will be coming back for. Very and nice. we might even get uh, Derek St. Holmes on that one. Ooh, very nice. So you got some fun guests? Yes. Coming up. Way more interesting than me. I'll say that. <laughs> oh, much. I doubt that. We we always have great conversations on this show. That's good. <laughs> I still think one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done was Duel. Yeah, that was good. That fun. was a great episode. Back in your back in your apartment, we recorded that one. Oh my gosh. One. Well, this is the first episode in the house. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Kyle, is there anything you want to promote? Any social media accounts or anything? I don't um, tell, tell what's going on with you that you want to promote. Yeah, follow me on Instagram at the carp with a K fourteen. I fucking love that screen name so much. <laughs> um, you, if you want to see like some cool wildlife photography, and I'll I usually promote like the music video stuff when I have that coming out too. Um, and then I post a lot of silly Star Wars stuff, and I don't know whatever I got. Anytime I've got silly like amounts of chocolate in my diet when i'm out on the film shoot i generally <laughs> take a photo of it it's it's a it's a fun account but yeah a lot of birds a lot of birds on that yeah account. so if you're interested in nature photography it's a place to go and then by this point you guys should know where to find me shameless picture show pretty much everywhere michael underscore virus pretty much everywhere and uh thanks for listening guys the shameless picture show is recorded in milwaukee wisconsin and eastern maryland and is hosted and produced by nick richards and michael virus Today's episode was edited by Michael Vyers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. 
The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.